Hi, and welcome to the Microbiome Matters podcast, a show brought to you by the Yakult Science Team, the team on a mission to make the science on gut health easy to digest. This podcast covers all matters of the gut microbiome, exploring that magnificent ecosystem residing in each and every one of us. And each week, we're joined by guests from clinical practice and research who will bring you their expert insights on the topic. So if you're a healthcare professional, make sure you like, subscribe, and tune in each week to learn exactly why the microbiome matters. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Microbiome Matters podcast. I'm Britt. And I'm Nathan. And today we are joined by Kimberly Wilson. Kimberly is a chartered psychologist, author and visiting lecturer working in private practices in central London. She is a former governor of the Tavistock and Portman NHS Mental Health Trust and the former chair of the British Psychological Society's Training Committee in Counselling Psychology. She is an award-winning food producer with a degree in nutrition and the author of How to Build a Healthy Brain. In series six, we are talking to our expert guests about how the gut microbiome may be an important consideration at key periods in the lifespan. And today with Kimberly, we will be exploring food, mood and the gut microbiome and the complexities of their interactions. Before we move into the questions, we just want to say thank you for joining us today, Kimberly. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We know you have a pretty full schedule, so we're really (laughs) appreciative that you could join us and speak to us today. Uh, So before we get into the questions, we want to ask you a bit about your career so far. And you've done a lot, achieved many great things and, you know, even made the final of Great British Bake Off. So that's quite an achievement. (laughs) So were there any points where you had that gut feeling or where you know you've followed your gut and where's it led you? Um, I think throughout actually, and I think I consider myself quite fortunate that I've always had a fairly strong connection to that sense of intuition and that kind of gut feeling. Um, And I think it's always just kind of led me down the right path, or at least the path that felt right for me. So that even if things, I don't want to say things didn't work out, but you know, it's, it's, I've been lucky and it's kind of been able to work for me. Yeah, no, I, I, and I don't, I don't, I don't know what that is. I guess if we were going to get scientific about it, you know, what we're talking about is interoception and valence and that kind of connection with your body because when we're talking about a gut feeling what we're talking about are the signals that your body sends you about you know your environment and your interaction with it and how your nervous system is responding to that and I suppose whether that's through luck whether it's just the the way that I wired I've always felt that quite keenly and it's pretty much always kept me safer and on the right track. Oh yeah, that's that's really good to hear. Um, yeah, always good to hear about where where your c- kind of career and life's taken you um, from your perspective. So we'd like to know about what got you interested in the field of psychology and why you decided to specialise in the field. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I think I, I knew from very early on, and I think I was a very kind of quiet 
bookish child. I wasn't the one that was, you know, the life and soul of the party. I was the one that was kind of in the corner watching people um, and just being interested in the way that people behave and how different people respond differently to the same event. Um, and there was, you know, there's a fair amount of kind of neurological illness in, in my family history. So I was also quite aware of brains and brains that work well and brains that don't work very well. And I suppose I was always just kind of curious about this, you know, three pound object in our in our heads that creates the world, creates the feelings that we have, manages our interaction with the world and and how it works. So I just kind of I basically got on the psychology train very early. <laughs> I haven't I haven't got off yet. Yeah, that's great. Too. I mean, it's nice to hear how you personal experience has driven you down this career path. And especially psychology is a relatively uh, new subject. So there's always ever um, growing research and it's always great to explore those paths. So as we mentioned before, you are an author of mm. How to Build a Healthy Brain. Um, mm -hmm. Please, could you describe to us your philosophy of whole body mental health and how the nutrition and the gut microbiome play a, a role into this? I would be delighted to. So essentially, um, I call it whole body mental health to make the point that certainly from my perspective, it doesn't make sense to, to try to conceive of mental health as distinct or separate from the rest of the body. It doesn't make any sense. That's not how your brain works. Your brain doesn't know that we conceptualize of the mind as separate from the rest of the body. As far as your brain is concerned, everything that it experiences comes through your body, whether that, you know, through your senses, um, but also, of course, then through your nutrition, through your immunological exposures, through the metabolites of your gut microbiome, everything that's happening in your brain is a consequence or, or comes through the conduit of your body. Um, and so this historical separation that we've had, and when I say historical, I think in my new book, I go through the history of mental illness, but, you know, we can go to at least as far back as 400 years ago when Descartes gave us, I think, therefore I am, this notion for him that human beings were conceived of two different materials, you know, this kind of the immaterial mind and then the material body. Um, but Descartes was was talking about the soul, really. For him, the mind and the soul were the same thing. And he was a very devout, Catholic and he was saying that God has given us this mind you know it's this incredible thing that is divine and beyond this kind of base material body that decays and and becomes uh, worn down and broken but the influence of that idea was that even now starting to change but even now if there's something going on in your mind, you go and see a psychiatrist, you know, or a psychologist. Um, it's, it's very much neck up. And then if something's going on in your body, then you go and see somebody else. But we're not thinking about actually, well, if there's something that is not functioning well in your mind, then what might be the contribution of your body? Um, could it be something around your nutrition? Could it be around a sedentary lifestyle? Could it be uh, what's happening in your gut? Could it be, well, even, even when we're thinking about things like uh, a trauma history, 
a trauma history has an effect on your stress response and the way that your stress hormones are secreted and their impact on the immune system. So nothing that we consider as being of the mind happens without the body. And I, I, whole body mental health is just trying to help get that across to people. We need to start thinking about the body whenever we're conceiving of, of the mind and mental health. Yeah, that uh, is so fascinating. And, you know, it seems to make a lot of sense to me, at least anyway, that you kind of, you can't think of the brain in isolation, because we're all so interlinked, all of our systems in our body. So, you know, where nutrition then might play a role in other systems, of course, can have an impact on the brain and vice versa. So, Mm. yes. And kind of, of course, right? Because if you think about, if you go to your doctor, and you've got I don't know, low or high blood pressure and palpitations and something, something's going on with your heart, right? You look at the symptom and then you think, what's going on with this organ? One of the first questions your doctor is going to ask you is, what's your diet like? Or how much exercise do you do? They're going to try to get to questions that give some detail or information about the conditions of your heart, the health condition of your heart, and how the health conditions of your heart might be giving rise to your cardio symptoms, right? So there's this understanding that when there is a a symptom that relates to an organ, then we need to think about the health of that organ. Somehow, and for some reason, we don't do that with the brain. So when someone is having a psychological or mind-based symptom, we might talk about depression, we might use certain labels, depression, anxiety, we might talk about trauma or or previous pain or stress, but we don't automatically think, well, what's going on with this organ? What is going on with the health of this organ in such a way as it might be contributing to the symptoms that we're seeing? So we treat the brain completely differently to the way that we treat any other organ or system in the body. And it doesn't make sense. And the reason it doesn't make sense is because your brain is the most metabolically active organ in your body. It is the biggest contribution to your basal metabolic rate. It's, you know, it's absorbing and working through almost 20% of your calories when your body is at rest. It has a huge nutrient demand. It is affected by the immune system and metabolites from your gut microbiome. Why are we not thinking about <laughs> what's what's going on for the brain in this in the same way? It, it absolutely makes no sense at all. Yeah, it, it kind of almost is like for anything else, you, you get the full story of what's going on before you can understand what is happening to that organ or that system. But for the brain, it's almost like keeping it at arm's distance, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So we previously spoke to Dr. Rabia Tobin on a, our podcast about how the gut-brain axis is now more widely recognised or mm-hmm. becoming more widely recognised to, and to be influential in regulating mood and cognition. Just for our listeners, you can find that episode in series three, and that was titled Stress, Anxiety and the Microbiota. But Kimberly, with regards to nutrition or food and how that can impact the gut-brain axis, mm-hmm. what's your insights to that? and how maybe specific dietary patterns might influence mental health? Mm. I mean, kind of, where do you want to start? Yeah. Um, I I guess I have two, I could call them obsessions. <laughs> I have two things that I really, uh, two hobby horses, essentially. One is omega-3 fatty acids and the other is fiber. Um, and I think the story of, psychological resilience um, really starts with the construction of 
the brain. And so if you think about the brain as a building almost, what you want is really strong foundations. Um, because if you have strong foundations, then your building is going to be able to withstand the stresses and storms that come much better than if you've built your house of straw, right? Um, and so for me, the when I think about mental health and psychological resilience, it's not just about thinking about where you are now or what's happened in the last few months or what's happened in the last few years. I think that goes all the way back to conception, actually, when we're building the framework framework and the architecture, the scaffolding of the brain. And that starts with essential fats. It starts with the first one that doesn't get much airtime is arachidonic acid. Arachidonic acid is a fatty acid that is essential for the formation of the epithelial cells and the, um, the, the cells of the, the blood vessels. And the blood vessels, because you, your brain has hundreds of miles of blood vessels, become the kind of architecture, the, the scaffolding for your brain. After that, then we're talking about DHA, the omega-3 fatty acid DHA. There is a huge concentration of it in the brain um, compared to the rest of the body. There is Professor uh, Michael Crawford calls has called it the biomagnification of omega-3 fatty acid, which is this idea that it is actively drawn down from the maternal body and sent to the fetal compartment. So it's so important for the brain, for the, for the developing brain, that it is actively pulled down from the mother's body. It's not this kind of passive action. It's like you're looking for it and pulling it into the fetal compartment. Um, and, and it makes up about 30% of the brain cell membranes and is absolutely irreplaceable. You cannot, there are other fatty acids that are easier to construct biologically. DPA is more abundant and it's easier to make, but your brain doesn't substitute DPA for DHA, you have to have DHA. DHA has a particular flexibility in its structure, which allows for membrane flexibility. And you want membrane flexibility because with this highly metabolic active brain, you've got lots of ingredients coming in, being converted, waste going out. So you need those processes, that, that membrane to be flexible to allow those things to happen. It helps with cell signaling, EPA and DHA help with reduction of inflammation, everything. Um, the reason that I always bang on about it is that our population consumption of the sources of these fats is incredibly low and has been for decades. And what's really worrying is that the Flynn effect, the Flynn effect, the Flynn effect is the idea that, um, or the observation that global IQs have been increasing year on year since records began, has actually started to reverse. Global IQs have been in decline since the 1990s. And we think that the quality of our diets is the biggest contributing factor to that decline. And that's terrifying. I find that terrifying. <laughs> um, and then fiber. And again, our population intakes of fiber are very low. And people tend, I think, obviously that's shifting, and this podcast is part of that shift, in that uh, people are understanding that there are other important things going on in the microbiome. But as it pertains particularly to the brain, there are lots of things. Again, the tr in training of the immune system, um, but particularly the production of short-chain fatty acids. And what is so remarkable about short-chain fatty acids is that they help to maintain the integrity of the blood 
brain barrier. So your brain, incredible, busy, hardworking, but very, very fragile. It's like a Hollywood diva, right? It's just, it's very fragile, wonderful, awesome, but fragile. And it has this very selective membrane that when it's working well, is only supposed to allow very, very certain molecules in, a bit of glucose or a transporter, a bit of water, a few amino acids, nothing else, essentially. And short chain fatty acids help to maintain that those strong, tight junctions of the blood brain barrier. But if you're not getting enough fiber, you're not getting enough of those short chain fatty acids. You have essentially kind of leakiness or permeability in your BBB. And then things can cross through from the brain that shouldn't be there. When that happens, you're much more likely to get an instance of neuroinflammation and then you're in trouble. So those are the, I think the two big ones are, you know, making sure you've got enough minerals and vitamins as well, but essential fats and fiber, I think are absolutely crucial and devastatingly, very worryingly, they're two nutrients that are lacking in our modern diets. That was a really long answer. (laughs) It was really interesting to hear actually. Yeah. I mean, I think what you said really does emphasize that like the brain and the gut aren't two separate entities. They really are just connected and external factors like food and nutrition does have a massive impact on development. Like I said, in many different processes, like for example, your psychology and like your immune mm-hmm. system and uh, early conception when you talked about um, fatty acids. So it's really interesting stuff here. And no earlier you mentioned slightly about how lifestyle and for example, a sedentary mm. lifestyle could affect your um, mental well-being. So with regards to that, how is our physical and mental well-being connected? And does nutrition and the gut microbiota have an impact on both? Um, yes. And, and in fact, in in my new book, I've moved away from the idea of talking about the brain or the body. And I talk, I talk about the brain body. Like, it's the same thing. We need to start shifting, I think, linguistically will help this, to, this, to understanding them as working together. Um, And some of the most robust data we have on the impact of lifestyle factors on brain and mental health come from the exercise literature. So we can say something as strong as staying regularly physically active, so consistently, not just like your weekend warriors, but kind of a consistent every day, every other day uh, physical activity can prevent depression. It will protect some people from depression and it can reduce depression in others, reduce risk and severity. Um, The other really important thing about physical activity in terms of the brain is its impact on protecting the brain from neurodegeneration. Um, And there are lots of reasons for this, you know, uh, from the aerobic exercise side, what it can do is help to maintain the health and flexibility of your blood vessels, which means that your your brain cells continue to get a good supply of oxygen, nutrients, glucose, which it needs to work well. Your brain cannot store energy. You know, your brain doesn't have a fat storage unit like the rest of your body does. So it needs a constant supply of energy and oxygen. And so if you don't have healthy blood vessels, if they become blocked or clogged or are unable to kind of expand very well, then your brain cells lose that and very quickly can die and become damaged. So regular aerobic activity helps to maintain the health of your cardiovascular system and your, your the, the vascular vasculation in your, in your brain, ensuring that your brain constantly gets a good supply of what it needs to work well. 
But then also on the resistance side, and this is one that I think women particularly need to think about um, and really get on board with. And I say that because women are often, certainly when I was growing up, women were discouraged from resistance training because you didn't want to get bulky and you don't want to look like a man and you don't want to look too athletic and all of this kind of thing. But we know that in older women at risk of neurodegeneration, resistance training helps to reduce the size of and the number of lesions in the brain so it can help to protect women against neurodegeneration and the reason that I say women in particular need to think about that is because women have twice the risk of Alzheimer's disease as men so whilst it's an important facet to be thinking about for everybody actually if you're part of a, a higher risk group then having that piece of information and getting started on prevention as early as possible is really really important. Um, And then you were talking about the microbiome. I think, you know, it's part of the same story, which is if your brain is made of nutrients, which it is, all of you is made of nutrients, which we often forget. We kind of think of food only as supplying energy and vitamins, not as the literal building blocks. Like your elbow used to be a piece of chicken and your eye (laughs) used to be an egg, you know, all of this kind of thing. Um, If your brain is made of nutrients, it's made and depends on certain nutrients that you can only get through the diet. You can't synthesize them. You can't make them from other components. You must get them from the diet. If you're not getting those things in, fundamentally, automatically, your brain is deprived and it will not, cannot work optimally. So, you know, there's no getting away from it. Yeah, we're just so complex, aren't we, as humans? <laughs> there's so much into um, how we're made and, you know, how how important nutrition is and physical activity is for our, our body, but then how we can maintain how our body's working to the best potential, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it's, yeah, just we're learning so much today. Um, <laughs> and we know that there are many critical points in the lifespan when psychology Mm. might rapidly be developing and kind of our psychological being might be developing an example Mm. maybe during adolescence but you know you're the Mm -hmm. you're the expert here we're really not so how (laughs) does our psychology develop during adolescence and does nutrition have a role to play during that time period or any are there any other Mm -hmm. times across the lifespan you did briefly mention about how in early development right from that point Mm. it's important but anything you can add there I mean, you're going to have to stop me again because (laughs) there are so many points. I will try to be succinct. Um, But I guess if we we think about three points, let's say conception, early early development of fetal life, adolescence and midlife. So what we know, for example, is that nutritional deficiencies during fetal life create measurable changes in both internalizing and externalizing behaviors in children, and I will talk about those, but also in IQ. When there are deficiencies in iodine, for example, during um, development, during pregnancy, children have up to 13.5 points lower IQ than children who have who were born to mothers who were getting sufficient iodine. That's more at the, the kind of extreme ends, but we know that iodine deficiency is the, I think the World Health Organization calls it the biggest preventable cause of brain damage worldwide. The problem with that, again, is that in the UK, iodine deficiency is the norm. 
in a, in a study of, of pregnant women, 67% of them had low ratios of iodine. And so that's what I mean about this kind of Flynn effect. We have a, a population-wide deficiency in a nutrient that is known to be important for cognition. Um, similarly, choline, another nutrient which helps to form brain cell membranes found in liver and egg yolks, mostly in um, animal foods, fish, that kind of thing, um, is when you supplement women with choline during pregnancy, you increase the child's attention as measured at age seven and ages 11. And what's really important about that is that attention isn't just about being able to, you know, watch TV uninterrupted. You're the, how well you do at school is based on how able you are to maintain attention on a difficult task. And so there are going to be children who simply by dint of their mother having eaten more eggs during pregnancy, for example, who are going to be able to maintain their attention much better. And those children are going to have an advantage. So nutrition can give children a neurological advantage at birth. And where that kind of fits into our society is that obviously it's wealthier women, wealthier families who are able to eat more nourishing foods during pregnancy. So their children are likely to have not just an economic advantage, but also then a neurological one as well. We know that undernourishment in childhood, so around ages three, is associated with more conduct disorder in children uh, at ages eight and 11, and more externalizing behaviors. The reason that's important, so externalizing behaviors are things like fighting, um, you know, graffiti, acting out, kicking, biting, those sorts of behaviors. The reason that's important is because those two things, conduct disorder and externalizing behaviors, are risk factors for adult violence, aggression, and offending. And so again, we have a nutritional impact on a very serious later lifestyle behavior. We have children who, again, by dint of nutritional deficiencies might be much more likely to end up being kicked out of school or finding it difficult to settle or being, you know, the naughty one and all of these kinds of things. Um, in adolescence, the brain goes through quite significant changes in adolescence. Hormones are rushing in, the brain is still being myelinated, so it's still be getting these um, kind of protective fatty layers around the axon, which means actually it's quite vulnerable to what's happening here. The problem is that that's exactly the time when, you know, teenagers are taking more responsibility for their own eating. You know, they're less likely to just eat at home. They're more likely to have some of their own money. Maybe they're going out, maybe they're drinking, maybe they're, you know, much more likely to eat fast food. So it's also the point at which nutrition drops off a cliff and people are going to school just on an energy drink. And so there's a risk that nutritional deficiencies at that point you know, when the brain is really going through some quite serious changes, it's going to affect the later trajectory of the brain. And so that's, again, another concern. I'm just concerned for everyone. And then, and then at midlife, when we're thinking about neurodegeneration, and so I, I always use Alzheimer's as the model for this, because A, it's the most common form of dementia, and dementia is our leading cause of death in the UK. And what's interesting about that is people say, well, is it just because we're living longer? No, because it's the seventh cause of death in somewhere like Greece, and they have an aged population as well. So it's not just about longer lives. It's something about the way that we're living 
which is harming our brains. And in fact, the rates of what's called young onset dementia, which is people who are diagnosed between 30 and 64, are increasing as well. So our brains are aging much more quickly than they should be. Um, And we know with something like Alzheimer's disease, which I think of as a model for brain aging, is that the damage begins to occur and accrue up to two decades before symptoms emerge. And that's why midlife is such an important time. Most people are diagnosed at 65 with Alzheimer's disease. So then you must be thinking then around your damage is starting to build up around 45 and into your 50s. And so that's why midlife risk factors, lifestyle factors. So um, central adiposity or obesity around the belly, um, high blood pressure, you know, things like uh, having high blood sugar, a sedentary lifestyle, smoking, all of those midlife lifestyle factors are significant risk factors for later diagnosis of dementia and Alzheimer's disease. So I think those are the three key points of life when we should A, be increasing the public, the quality of public health information about the brain, Nobody is the most important organ in your body, but no one knows how to take care of it. We're not teaching children how to look after their brains. We're not teaching adults how to look after their brains. Um, So we need much better public health uh, information advocacy. And we need to make, if we're thinking about the long-term trajectory of brain health, we need to make nutritional foods much more affordable. Um, and much more accessible so that it isn't the case that if you're wealthy, your kids are going to be all right, neurologically speaking. But if you're poor, then your children are going to be going to struggle. That that cannot be. Yeah, I mean, where do I start? I mean, it, it, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so interesting. I mean, yeah, again, emphasizing the, the, the detail that nutrition is as important for our mental health as anything else. Again, like highlighting um, adolescence as a critical point and I think highlighting middle age as well. I don't think many people realize that middle age is, mm. like you said, it's a very important time for mental health and the right nutrition can like benefit mood and just uh, mental mm. well-being. So, yeah, um, it's been great listening to the research surrounding this topic. I mean, I think Britt would agree we could listen for hours more, but, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> we're going to move on to some practical tips. So. Sure. What are some of your uh, top tips for healthcare professionals working with clients or patients on supporting their mental health? So I suppose my, my top tip would be to think about the body. And, you know, I, in my, t- what was it, would it have been kind of 15, 20 years of, you know, from, from the point of A level to qualification, a decade and a bit of uh, psychology training, we, the, the only thing we were talk, talk about the brain specifically was, you know, how to find the hippocampus in the sagittal section, you know, just kind of bits of brain anatomy. Um, but we weren't taught, which is really ironic, because, again, you would never get this in cardiology. You would never get a cardiologist who didn't have basic information on what it took to ensure that a heart was healthy. Like, it just, you, it would never happen. Um, but psychologists aren't, routinely taught how to take care of a a brain, how to ensure that a brain fundamentally as an organ is healthy. We're taught how to take care of the symptoms that emerges from a brain that's struggling, but we're not taught to think about 
actually what does health look like from a brain perspective so i would say think about the body and and that doesn't mean you have to get a degree in nutrition but there are there are resources there are books out there that will help you to understand the relationship between the body and the brain nutrition and the brain so just have a kind of working knowledge and and refer out you don't have to again make the decisions yourself but you can refer have nutrition colleagues as part of your network that you can refer to in order that you can be thinking about your patient or client holistically um, and ask about the diet. You know, we know that the more that someone adheres to their nation's recommendations for a healthy diet, so whether you're in Norway or Japan or Brazil, the more you adhere to a healthy diet, the lower your risk of depression. And we know from intervention studies now, things like the SMILES trial, the AMEND study, Healthy Med, that when you take a group of people who have depression and a poor diet and you improve their diet, you get a 30%, 36% remission rate. So for a group of people, for a good chunk of your patients, diet is going to be a contributing factor to the severity of what they're feeling. It's not going to be the answer for everybody and it's not going to kind of fix the whole thing, but it's going to be a contributing factor. And when we're talking about things like depression, where actually marginal gains can make a difference, feeling 2% better might be the difference between getting up out of bed to go and collect your kids or feeling like you're staying in bed all day, right? These marginal gains can make a huge difference. And considering that depression is one of our leading causes of global disability, that could make a significant improvement and change for your patients and clients. Yeah, um, I think our listeners enjoy listening to the practical practical tips because they can apply their knowledge and what you said to their own practice, which helps them overall improve their own, uh, own uh, practice. So we finally have one last question, which we'd like to mm-hmm. ask all of our guests on the podcast. And that is, uh, what is one thing you do to love your gut? <laughs> I I recently have just become obsessed with fiber. <laughs> I was always I was always pretty high fiber, but um particularly when in the midst of writing um my new book, getting really into the the data and realizing that, you know, as much as I like to talk about omega-3 fatty acids, the contribution of the gut microbiome in terms of modulation of inflammation and of uh, production of short-chain fatty acids and protection of the blood-brain barrier um, have become my new obsession. So I've been upgrading all of my snacks and snacking on many more kind of roasted beans and like bowls of fruit and fiber. Yeah, I really really upgraded my intake. Yeah, that's um, really good to hear about Vibe, you know, and some almost practical little things there, lots of beans, kind of having those bowls of snacks here and there that are to, mm-hmm. are there to boost your fibre intake, anything you can do. Definitely. Yeah, so thanks so much, Kimberly. We've now reached the end of today's episode, but I'm sure Nathan will agree that, you know, that's so, so helpful there to cover such a, a big topic, you know, looking at how the brain and nutrition and is related to our whole body and you know how how we can look after it with some of those small small steps and that's that's really something that's um, tangible for our healthcare professional audience I think to take away and just try and help their patients to make those small steps to look after their brain health fantastic it's been amazing listening to you and um, yeah we hope our listeners enjoyed it as much as you have so 
just want to say don't forget if you want to see more from Kimberly to follow her at food and psych on Instagram and don't forget to check out her book how to build a healthy brain and also upcoming book that we're very excited about soon to be released unprocessed how the food we eat is fueling our mental health crisis so thank you very much (laughs) thank you thank you very much thank you so much thanks for tuning in to this episode of the microbiome matters podcast if you've enjoyed the episode don't forget to follow and rate us and visit our website at yakult.co.uk forward slash hcp to make sure that you don't miss out on any future episodes See you next time.